Washington Capitals are alive. Tampa Bay did not look good. It's going to Game 7, and that's good for Vegas, who are waiting and resting. you got to give Washington credit. The Capitals battled with every breath and with every stride. Of course, if Tampa Bay had flurry, they would have swept the series in four games. My name is Mark Matt. I am a super genius with a tested IQ of 166, and you can't teach that. Bada boom, smartest guy in the room. 412-333-WXDX is the number to call. Or you can follow me on Twitter, at MarkMaddenX. By popular demand, posted on the Mark Madden page at WXDX.com, a picture of Mark andre Fleury with lead singer Vince Neal of Motley Crue. And if Flurry would have been the singer in Motley Crue instead of Vince Neal, they would have sold even more tickets, sold even more records. The Pirates were off yesterday. They play at Cincinnati tonight. If the Pirates had Flurry pitching, it'd be a no-hitter, and they'd be in first place. If the Steelers had Flurry at running back, He'd show up for OTAs without a contract and mentor that new quarterback, Mason Rudolph. The flurry talk isn't going away until hockey's over. People are taking the Penguins not winning and saying, well, the Penguins aren't playing. That's because they traded flurry. Flurry's still playing. And they apply the same demented non-logic to Reeves or to Ian Cole who stopped playing a series before the Penguins did. And that totally takes the other team out of the equation and how hard it is to win a Stanley Cup out of the equation, let alone how hard it is to win three in a row. Take your flurry jersey and gag yourself with it. If Matt Murray didn't play up to your exacting standards, Maybe it's because he lost his dad and that affected his play. And also because he got concussed. The kid won two Stanley Cups before his rookie year was over, and that's not good enough because the guy who smiles nice got shipped out. The same guy that this crap hole of a town tried to run out of town from 2012 through 2015. And then dopes on Twitter saying, you're making too big a deal out of this. This is you trying for ratings. First off, deal holes, I already have ratings. Huge, throbbing, tumescent, veiny ratings. And second off, this discussion is all over the place. Everywhere on social media, everywhere on the talk shows, it's absolutely unavoidable. Although pretty soon, I'm going to start to avoid it. On today's program, we got the guy who wrote the Caddyshack book at 3.30 p.m. I swear I'll know his name by then. Chris Nasha something. Nasha Wadi? That sound right? Great book. And we got radio legend and noted author Scott Paulson as my co-host in the 5 o'clock hour. That's great because I can just let Scott do all the work much like has been done before in this building. A, a big topic of discussion in football is who is and isn't 
showing up for OTAs. Lev Bell wasn't there today and isn't going to be there and shouldn't be. No contract, no work. Even though Bell wants way too much and way too long, if he's not signed, he doesn't have to be there. Uh, OBJ is there for the New York football giants, and that's good PR for a guy who needs it. Tom Brady isn't there because, at age 40, he's taking a stand against a cruel sport and abusive management that has enabled him to pocket a mere $197 million, and Gronk isn't showing up either. But the most interesting case is Aaron Donald of Penn Hills and Pitt, who is the NFL's best defensive player, period. He's got one more year left on his rookie deal, and he's going to make about 7 mil, but he wants a new deal for big cash, and he deserves it. He's the reigning NFL Defensive Player of the Year, and he's made the Pro Bowl all four of his pro seasons. But a deal's a deal. A contract is a contract, and Aaron Donald should show up for anything that isn't voluntary. It's the same with Julio Jones in Atlanta. He has outperformed his contract. Jones is making 10.5 mil, and AB's making 16 mil. But when you sign a long-term deal and you outperform it, you have to live with it. If you got hurt, the team would have to pay the deal off anyway and live with that. Now I lost my place because I'm shuffling papers. I, I have far too many notes. Anyway, these guys, OTA showing up, blah, blah, blah. I hate radio. Wish I could find something different to do. Oh, here it is. There is risk both ways. Risk both ways. You know what's boring? Home runs are boring if there's too many. The New York Yankees hit five home runs last night, and that's too many, and that's boring. Baseball in general is boring. In April, MLB had more strikeouts than hits. MLB's batting average right now is 245 which would be the lowest since 1972. More than a third of plate appearances end in a strikeout, a walk, or home run. The ball doesn't get put in play enough. Boring, boring, boring. LeBron scored 44 and Cleveland won because they were at home, and the home team almost always wins by double digits in the NBA. Boring, boring, boring. The hockey game was not boring. What a pass by Baxter right on Oshie's tape in a crowd for Washington's first goal. Lots of hitting, a very physical game. Game 7 is Wednesday, and that is must-see TV. But I like Tampa at Tampa. How could you not? If it was the NBA, they'd win by double digits. If they had Flurry, they'd win by triple digits. I saved the best for last in this opening segment. This from the Twitter account of Ed Bouchette of the Post-Gazette covering OTAs today at Steelerland on the south side. At Steelers' first OTA practice today, Ben Roethlisberger gave quarterback Mason Rudolph a few tips and said he will help the rookie out just as he has others. He said his previous comments were, Taken out of context. 
To repeat, Ben said his previous comments were taken out of context. I love Ben, and this is why I love Ben the most. Ben says his comments were taken out of context. No, they were not. They were taken directly from a tape of him being interviewed on the B team. What Ben said wasn't out of context. It was the entire context. But saying something was taken out of context always sounds like a good excuse. And if it sounds like I'm being critical of Ben, I'm not. I I think this is hilarious. He plays the media in this town like a grand piano. I mean, when he said today the comments were taken out of context, I swear to God, if I'd have been there, I'd have cracked up. Because that is such a load of bull steam. But, you know, I mean, what's Ed Bouchette going to say? No, you're lying. It was not a context. I heard it. Uh, more from Ed. And it's great, by the way, that Ed is a contracted performer on the B team, but his tweets are public uh, consumption, so I can just read them on the air like he works for us. Like everybody works for us. It's the beauty of Twitter. If Marc-Andre Fleury worked for us, my ratings would be double, tripled. Uh, Ed tweets that Ben Roethlisberger's first impression of rookie quarterback Mason Rudolph at Steelers practice was good, quote, he's got a big arm, he seems to understand the offense, seems to not have any issues in the huddle, and I thought he did really well, unquote. Now, those sound like favorable comments about Rudolph, but I have to consider the possibility that these quotes were taken out of context. 412. <laughs> 412-333-9939 is the number to call. The Caddyshack guy's on at 330. Chris, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name. Chris Nashawati, but his book's great. His Caddyshack book is great. We'll talk to him at 330. And we got Scott Paulson at uh, 5 p.m. hosting that entire hour. Um. The late Brian Pillman would have been 56 years old today. I'd give anything if Brian were still alive, but then I might not be because Brian certainly would have taken years off my life. God knows he did his best in that regard when he was alive. Does anybody remember when Brian would appear on my show? It was That was 1250. It was absolutely chaotic. It, it was like I, my various producers would look at me through the glass saying, what the hell is happening? 1059 the X. And now the super genius, Mark Madden. What up, man? There's always been an unspoken dynamic. I am a lot smarter than you. Okay, so maybe it's a spoken dynamic. The X at 1059. Uh, from now on, when I say something offensive, it's not me that's saying it. I'm playing a character that says offensive things. Uh, my character's name is 1059 Commenter. Whenever I say something uh, that makes you want to call my boss and ask for my immediate dismissal or suspension, uh, don't refer to Mark Madden. That's not the guy who said it. The guy who said it is 1059 Commenter. You'll know who it is because he won't be that funny either. Double M on the X. We got Chris Nashawati. He's a movie critic. He's the author of Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. He'll join me at the bottom of the hour. I'm just delighted I know his name, and 
I think I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, Caddyshack is one of those movies that's a lot more popular now than it was then. Caddyshack only grossed $40 million, which was okay by the standard of the day. The 17th highest grossing movie of that year, 1980. Like I said, that's that's okay, but it didn't get great reviews. Caddyshack, now, I'm sure, you know, given the lowbrow nature of my audience, I'm sure all of you have watched it dozens of times, like me. And think about it, because what I'm about to say, you probably never noticed. I had to have it pointed out to me. But Caddyshack has almost no plot. It's a series of vignettes loosely strung together. But it has almost no plot, and that's because the original plot was supposed to focus on the love story between Danny and Maggie. But that was never going to happen because those actors won't stars. There was no point in making them the center of the movie when you had Chevy Chase, Bill Murray, Rodney Dangerfield, and Ted Knight. They're stars. Uh, everything Bill Murray did was improvised. So much about Caddyshack wasn't very good, but it was just so friggin' funny. Uh, there's so much in Caddyshack that's subtle. For example, Bill Murray, the Cinderella story scene, where he's whacking the flowers. The greenskeeper about to become the master's champion. Uh, and by the way, whacking the flowers is such a great visual. It even sounded like a golf shot. When Murray talks about what club he's going to use, it's always way too short for the yardage. I forget the exact yardage of club. Like, got about 400 yards to go. He's going to use a 7-iron. Just the subtlety. And that character, Carl Spackler, was Murray's go-to character in improv. He called him the honker. And he would play him, like, out in the street for practice. Uh, Doug Kenny wrote, co-wrote two movies ever, Animal House and Caddyshack. And then he died way too young just after Caddyshack was released. He was on vacation in Hawaii, and he either slipped and fell off a cliff or jumped off the cliff or slipped off the cliff while he was looking for a better place to jump. Uh, Doug Kenny was the founder and editor of Nat Lamp Magazine, National Lampoon, which was my Bible as a kid. As much as anybody, Doug Kenny shaped what you hear on this show, except it's about 10% as good. Uh, one of the best things I've ever done in my career, when I was at the Post-Gazette, I did a written version of Ask Mark Anything, which was fake letters with fake re with, with my response. And uh, my boss at the Post-Gazette hated it. Uh, the one sports editor, Jim Barger, Got it. He was the only reason it got in. And uh, Matty Ross, who was the editor-in-chief back then, not editor-in-chief, that was that was John Craig, but, but, but John was kind of phasing out at that point. He was an older gentleman. He was a real newspaper guy. Matty Ross was just a horrible-looking kabuki doll with clothespins in her hair and just no imagination whatsoever. And uh, she called me in and said, well, why can't you do it with real letters? I go, because we don't get real letters, and they wouldn't be very funny. And she goes, well, why don't we just make up the scores of the games then and put them in the sports section? I go, I got to tell you, it would be more entertaining than the dribble you're publishing. 
but but that that column was a direct knockoff of Doug Kenny's National Lampoon's uh, letter section, made up letters, made up you know funny responses, and that was the that was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I can knock off a column for the Post Gazette, excuse me, for the Trib now, in about seriously ninety minutes if I really work hard at it. That letters column, the the ask mark anything, would take four or five hours every week. And even then, it would never quite be done. Because honestly, I, I thought of Doug when I wrote it. I thought of National Lampoon, and I wanted to make it that good. So uh, it's going to be great to talk to Chris Nashawati about Caddyshack. I like talking about stuff like Caddyshack. Let's be honest. It's more entertaining than any Pirates game ever. Uh, a hockey note, there's optimism with the New York Islanders that the new general manager, Lou Lamorello, is going to convince John Tavares to forego free agency and stay in Brooklyn. If the Islanders make Tavares the highest paid player in hockey, okay. But if he stays for any other reason, he's nutso. Uh, Elliot Friedman in Canada, who we pretend is a good journalist, but is really always wrong and just a hack, he's talking about Tavares to the Penguins. Yeah, that's a great idea, except for the cap implications and that Tavares can't play wing and that he wouldn't want to be third center. Other than that, he'd be a perfect fit, no question. Let's go to Jamie in the car. Jamie, you're on with Double M. Hey, Double M, thanks for taking my call. Right. Um, I want to throw something out there to kind of get your opinion. Last year we had a lot of people call in bashing Ole Mata. Uh, this year he was pretty healthy. I thought he had a pretty good year this year. What would you think? I thought he was brilliant. I thought he was the best overall defenseman consistently for the Penguins all year, and I've talked about this. The main reason, he was healthy during the off season and had an entire summer to work out and get himself back in form physically, and that gave him a lot of confidence. I think the confidence was a bigger factor than only fitness, but, uh, but one fed into the other. Up next, let me practice pronouncing his name again. Chris Nashawati wrote a great book, Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. I'm Mark Madden, 105.9. And now the super genius, Mark Madden. Mark, huge fan. Love the show. Because that's what you got to do. Hey, Mark, big fan and all that. I, 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 I think you're on to something. The X at 105.9. You've all watched the movie. Now you got to read the book. It's called Caddyshack. The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. We welcome now to the program the book's author, Chris Nashawati. Uh, Chris, this is a great book and, and very thorough. How hard was it to compile 38 years after the movie? Uh, some key people are dead. Yeah, that's true. And, and thanks for having me first off. Absolutely, it was a challenge, an uphill challenge. You know, Ted Knight and Rodney Dangerfield obviously are, are dead, and, and, and Doug Kenny, one of the writers and producer, uh, passed away about a month after the movie was made. I got lucky enough to talk to Harold Ramis before he passed away. Um, but, you know, there's, there's a lot of archive stuff, and, uh, you know, uh, so many people had great stories about the people who passed away that it was almost like uh, they were waiting for the chance to, to share their memories of these people. So uh, I feel like I hope that, that they sort of come alive in the book a little bit. What made the cult of Caddyshack grow? Because it was not well-reviewed at the time and not nearly the blockbuster hit that Animal House was. Yeah, that's putting it mildly. I mean, the movie, when it came out, critics really dogpiled on it. It was, I mean, the reviews are 
if you go back and read them now, they're just savage. Um, I think what happened was that it was a new kind of comedy. You know, Animal House certainly started it, and Caddyshack took off from there. I think it because it came of age in the age of VHS. I don't know how many of your listeners are old enough to remember VHS machines, um, of VCRs, but but you know I think a lot of people had the tape and they watched and rewatched and rewatched the tape and memorized the lines and it became sort of this cult thing where if you're at a sporting event and a guy's at the foul throw line and someone yells out Noonan, you know exactly what he's talking about. <laughs> uh. The original plot of Caddyshack changed, didn't it? It went from a love story between Danny and Maggie to almost having no plot whatsoever. How'd that happen? Yeah, the original story was between Danny Noonan, like you said, played by Michael O'Keefe, and his you know young Irish girlfriend who works at the club, and another one of the caddies. It was like a love triangle. And the characters who we now think of as the stars of the movie, Chevy Chase, Ronnie Dangerfield, Ted Knight, and Bill Murray, they were sort of these periphery characters. Um, so uh, as they were shooting it and they realized just how good Chase, Murray, Knight, and Dangerfield were, they said, you know what, we got to follow the funny here. Let's throw the script in the trash. Let's film more stuff with these great comic minds. A lot of it, you know, was not even scripted at all. All of Bill Murray's stuff was, was completely improvised. And they just sort of figured it out that, you know, that let's follow the funniest stuff. And, and that's how they, they got the movie they got. Of course, when they got to the editing room, it didn't make any sense because uh, when you don't shoot the script, you get a lot of scenes that have nothing to do with each other. This was the first time the late Harold Ramis directed. Did his inexperience almost help the movie, Chris, with allowing all the improv and going into different directions? Yeah, I mean, it, it both helped and hurt. Uh, you know, because he was uh, trained at Second City, you know, where they're the, basically the home of improvisation comedy, uh, you know, he felt pretty comfortable letting people like Dangerfield and Murray and Chase veer off script because he knew that they would come up with funnier stuff than they could ever possibly write. Um, you know, so that was the positive thing about it. The negative thing about it is he had no idea what he was doing. Um, and and but the movie is a mess. It was only saved in the editing room when someone had the bright idea of adding the gopher, which they had only shot one scene with. Uh, they went back and begged the studio for more money and shot more gopher scenes, and that sort of stitches all of these weird, non-related scenes together. Well, as you say, the gopher was a late addition to the movie. He started as a puppet in an early scene, and then became a mechanical gopher. And like you said, he tied the plot together. Doug Kenny did not like that, did he? Uh, one of the movie's writers. Both he and Ramis hated the idea of the gopher. And, you know, I can't blame them. They, you know, they thought, they pictured Caddyshack as being, you know, a silly comedy, but also one that, you know, was a little bit a coming-of-age story and maybe a little bit more serious than it turned out. Uh, when it was sort of discussed to add the gopher um, in post-production, they both swallowed hard, and Kenny really took it to heart. I mean, he really felt crushed by the gopher. Uh, he felt it really cheapened the movie. And, and, and in a lot of ways, I kind of see what he, you know, how he felt. I mean, the gopher is, is silly, and it's, it's dumb. But over, over time, I've sort of loved, uh, I've come to embrace the gopher a little bit. We're talking to Chris Nashawati. He's the author of Caddyshack, The Making of a Hollywood Cinderella Story. Uh, I think Chevy Chase said it best. Caddyshack was Bill Murray's movie, wasn't it? 
It was, and I was really, I was really touched when he said that. You know, those two had a long history that was not very pretty before Caddyshack came around. You know, Bill Murray was was Chevy Chase's replacement on Saturday Night Live after Chevy left to go have a movie career after the first season, and and you know there was. A lot of hurt feelings at Saturday Night Live among the cast members who were left behind. You know, they felt Chevy got a swollen ego. And uh, when he came back to guest host in 1978, Bill Murray, as the new guy, took it upon himself to sort of avenge them. And the two of them got in a fist fight backstage before Chevy went out and delivered his monologue. So when they got on the set of Caddyshack in the fall of 79, a lot of people did not know how that would go. And the one great scene they have together in Carl's Shack, you know, the whole pool or the pond thing, that was a, a, an unscripted thing that, that they just added at the last minute because the studio saw that those two guys were so good that they needed a scene together. And that's when they sort of, the ice between them sort of thawed a little bit. The improv stuff by Bill Murray, I think, made the movie feel dangerous, don't you, Chris? I mean, the playing through scene we just talked about, the Cinderella story, caddying for the bishop, and the Dalai Lama. In the Dalai Lama scene, you could tell the young actor playing the caddy is, like, terrified. Because there's a pitchfork in his neck, and he has no idea what this guy's going to do. Uh, totally, and you, you know, but he. The, I, when I talked to that caddy, um, his name's Peter Burkrot. He was telling me how Murray was so in character that he was kept pressing the end of the pitchfork into his neck harder and harder with each take, and he was just like, you know, geez, this is this is getting a little uh, a little nuts here. I think it is dangerous. I think Murray sort of gives it this real sort of comedy without a net sort of. Uh, just unpredictability. He's just a live wire. And, you know, that, that famous Cinderella story scene, that's Murray unscripted in one take. And that's when you think about that, that's just incredible. Well, I was talking about that scene before we brought you on, Chris. And, and I love the subtlety of some of the work on Caddyshack. For example, when Murray does the Cinderella story scene, he yells out yardage. And every club he chooses is way too short for the yardage. Right. I think he's going to hit a five iron like 350 yards or right. something. And I'm thinking, boy, is he just screwing up? And then I'm, no, because he knows golf. He worked at a country club. That was just a, a bit of subtlety, wasn't it? I think so, yeah. I think he was just having fun. I, you know, he's a, yeah, Bill Murray told me when I interviewed him, and it was I can scratch that off my bucket list now, you know, interviewing Bill Murray. But he told me that, you know, him – Back in, in those days, you know, the late 70s, early 80s, him improvising back then, he said that he was at the height of his game. You know, he just knew that if you put the camera on him and told him, gave him an idea, he could just run with it and knew it would be funny. He, there was no, there's no hesitation for him, no doubt. Uh, he just nails it. Was Caddyshack the most drug-fueled movie of all time? If it's not, then I, I've yet to heard of one, I've yet to hear of one that was more drug fueled. Um, you know, they filmed it in South Florida in 1979, and that's pretty much the gateway into the country for cocaine during that. time. I was going to say it's really not far from where the cocaine is, is it? Yeah, no, and in fact, they brought it to them pretty pretty pure. Um, you know, with the exception of Ted Knight. No, I'm not. I'm not going to say everyone was a cocaine taker, but everyone was certainly a partier, other than Ted Knight. Uh, and the cocaine was, you could argue, the thing that fueled that movie. It was plentiful. Uh, it was procured for them. It was cheap, uh, and and uh, everyone had a good time. It's sort of amazing when you think about it how much partying went on during that movie uh, that any movie got made at all. As you mentioned, Ted Knight was the movie's one true pro. And he had cancer 
uh, during the filming of the movie. How did he cope with everything, with, with, the, with the hijinks going on, with his illness? That must have been a tough shoot for him. Yeah, it didn't go well for Ted Knight. I mean, by the way, I would argue that he is, as much as I love everyone in the movie, I would argue that he is the secret weapon in the whole thing. You know, Judge Smales, that performance is incredible. Um, But yes, he was the odd man out. He hated the sort of the partying that was going on, you know, the people who would oversleep and he'd be waiting for them or, you know, but he did a lot of his scenes with Rodney Dangerfield and Rodney Dangerfield was completely inexperienced as an actor and, and Dangerfield's whole idea of acting meant that he would just spurt out whatever, and whatever came into his mind. And Ted Knight did not work that way. He was, you know, coming off the Mary Tyler Moore show where you, you read the script and you learn the script and you recite every word, period and comma. And he just, it just drove him crazy. Those two, by the end of the production, hated each other. Well, the, the great thing about Dangerfield, and obviously an awesome performance there, but he had never really acted much before. And one thing I noticed, and I read this somewhere too, whenever he would say a line, while the other character was talking, he would totally shut down. He, he yeah. would like, he would only be in character when he was talking. Otherwise, he would kind of stare straight ahead into space all the time. Now, maybe that was what he was going for, but it was still unusual. It's not, and not just that, and you're absolutely right, but you can also see him in a couple of scenes kind of mouthing the other guy's lines a little bit. I mean, he was just so untrained as an actor. You know, he was a stand-up comic. And aside from one tiny role in a film in in the 60s that he did, this was completely new to him. And he just, he didn't even know what the word action meant uh, at the beginning of the scene. You know, he just didn't get it. In fact, you know, he would be doing his scenes and, you know, spouting all of his, you know, one-liners. And he would get really insecure and nervous because no one was laughing. And they had to pull him aside and say, Rodney, you know, I know you think you're bombing, uh, but you're not. It's just that no one can laugh or they'll ruin the take. And he just didn't get movies. Could you make a movie like Caddyshack today, or is Hollywood too formulaic? Uh, never mind the gopher, I think they'd want to put in a superhero. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think you could, I mean, you look, you could make a movie like Caddyshack, but you couldn't make it under the conditions that they made Caddyshack. First of all, the drugs and partying, that would never fly. Uh, you know, movies are such big investments these days that everything, every penny's accounted for. There's all, so many levels of safeguards and, you know, uh, all of that. I also think that they wouldn't allow people to just improvise and make stuff up as they go along and throw the throw the script away. I mean, it's just not the way to make movies. And and the fact that they got away with it is just is sort of remarkable. Yeah, but it it really does stand the test of time. Uh, I'm not anti Will Ferrell by any means, but I think Will Ferrell's made more bad movies than good. Yeah, and I just don't see a place for him in Caddyshack. I I just don't see which one of the four he would usurp because those guys were all that good. I, I agree with you 100%. Uh, you know, I, I like Will Ferrell. Like you said, some of his movies aren't that great. Um, but, yeah, I think there's a different style that, that's going on in this movie, and it's, it's a really anti-authoritarian sort of vibe. Uh, I think the comedy of that era, you know, whether you're talking about Animal House or Caddyshack, they, have, they both have this sort of slobs versus the slobs mentality, and that's about bringing down people in power. And, and throwing, you know, lobbing spitballs at, at the people who are, are rich and conservative and, like, you know, aren't going to let you have a good time. That's what these movies are about. They're about being, you know, radical and about being funny and about just giving the people in power uh, all the resistance you can. 
I, I think what shows how truly great it was, Chris, and I put Animal House in this category for the same reason, and even Slapshot, which is my favorite sure. uh, sports comedy, no one's ever had the balls to try to remake it. We're in an era where every movie that was any good gets remade or reimagined. No one has the balls to do that with Caddyshack, and I doubt anyone ever will. I couldn't agree more. How are you going to remake Caddyshack? Who are you going to cast as Carl the Greenskeeper? Who are you going to who are you going to cast as Spalding? You know what I mean? Like you can't, you just can't do it. And if they did do it, it would be so sacrilegious that no one would go to see it. Uh, I'm glad they should just leave it alone, never touch it. Because if they do, I will be the first in line with a picket sign. Chris, great stuff, great book as well. I appreciate you taking the time and. Uh... Hopefully, we'll talk. Write, write a book on Animal House or write one on Slapshot. That'd be great. <laughs> I'll get to work. Thanks. That's Chris Nashawati. Check. Sorry. If you think talking about the pirates is better than talking about that, you are just so wrong. But we'll talk about the pirates a little bit later, too. 1059 The X. The X at 1059 and live Mark Madden. Mark Madden. Yes. Your voice is like sweet nectar to my ears. The last thing we need is a lot of loose talk. Hmm? Hmm? I like it. I like it. The X at 105.9. If you want to talk Caddyshack, you'll never have a better chance to do it than right now. 412-333-WXDX. Uh, ben just said, Roethlisberger, that He's still taking it one year at a time. Swear to God. Just said that at OTAs, which is a change from saying he intends to play four more years. Which was a change from him talking about retirement not long before that. It's why I love him. It's why I love him. He plays this town and its media like a piano. And uh, Ben said today his comments about Mason Rudolph were taken out of context. They were taken directly from a radio interview that was all Ben on the B team. So his comments weren't out of context. They actually were the context. One thing about Ben, boy, he's a nice bunch of guys. No quarter. Brought to you by CW Electrical Services. Make the switch at CWElectricalServices.com. It was great talking with uh, Chris Nashawati about Caddyshack. Uh, my three favorite comedies ever are Caddyshack, Animal House, and Slapshot, in no particular order. Now, you look at some latter-day comedies that people have gone nuts for, and me too, I've enjoyed movies like Old School, uh, Anchorman, Super bad, wedding crashers, dodgeball. But those just don't compare to Animal House, Caddyshack, or Slapshot. Now, I take into account that I might be saying that because I'm old. And those are movies from my youth. And everything seems better when you're young. But but I don't think so. I think a movie like Caddyshack, and like Chris and I agreed on, it could never be made now. It, it, it just... It was too fly by the seat of your pants. It wasn't formulaic enough. Like, Hollywood stinks now. Every movie's a superhero movie. Every single effing movie's a superhero movie. Or a sequel. Or a remake. Or a reimagining. God forbid anybody ever have an original idea, but when they do, they're usually caca. So maybe they're 
doing the right thing. We spoke earlier about uh, Washington beating Tampa Bay last night 3-0 to send that to Game 7 at Tampa tomorrow night. Alex Ovechkin's having a great playoff, but he had zero points last night. So I bet he has a huge Game 7. You watch. Washington may not win, but it won't be Ovi's fault. Just like Washington usually doesn't win, and it's not Ovi's fault. Last night was Braden Holtby's first shutout all season. Playoffs, regular season, first shutout. I know he played bad. I didn't think he played that bad. That is a crazy statistic for any number one goalie, let alone a past Vesna Trophy winner. Uh, uh, Eric Burns used to play Major League Baseball. Now he golfs and he does it very fast. Eric Burns set a world record by golfing 245 holes in 12 hours. He just kept running between shots. He logged 1,715 strokes and ran 65 and a half miles. This reminds me of a famous exchange in the movie Tin Cup. Roy McAvoy said, did you ever shoot par with a seven iron? And David Sims, that's Don Johnson's character, he says, you know Roy, it never even occurred to me to try. Speed golfing is fun, but it's dumb. But if Tiger did it, he'd dominate. If Flurry did it, he'd dominate Tiger. And David Sims hates children, and he hates old people, and he hates dogs. Do I come to your office and ask you for your autograph? I don't think so. Let's go to Brian and Cranberry. Brian, you're on with the super genius. I just wanted to thank you for a really enjoyable afternoon. So, uh, listening to you and listening to Chris about Caddyshack. Uh, well, I've enjoyed it too. Let's go to Brad and West End. Brad, you're on with hey, Double Mark. M. Hey, Mark, I just want to ask you uh, where you rank in the movie Caddyshack, the Baby Ruth candy bar scene. That's not one of my favorite scenes because I'm not a big fan of bathroom humor, but yes. it was funny. It made uh -huh. sense in the movie. Now, this probably Ask Mark Anything, but what's your favorite scene in any movie comedy-wise? It's not Ask Mark Anything. You're right. 412-333-9930. Now, keep in mind, if you find the next segment offensive, it's not being done by Mark Matt. It's being done by my new character, 105.9 Commenter. So up next, 105.9 Commenter will talk about Danica Patrick. Here on 105.9 The X.